Okay, good evening. Please open your Bibles to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. Anyone need a Bible? Please raise your hand if anyone needs a Bible. So we are, man, we're at a slow pace. I, uh, I like to do two chapters a night, and we're in our third night, and we're in chapter two. Wow. Um, verse seven of, of Judges, we actually went through seven through 15, but I'm just going to briefly um, go through that. And uh, I'm just going to briefly go through that. So let's pray before we begin. Lord, we thank you that we can go chapter by chapter through your word. And I just, Lord, get this distinct sense that uh, Tuesday night is, is just going to be strengthening our church body. It's going to be adding iron to our souls, Lord, and um, in a very, very wonderful way, Lord. We want to be prepared for every good work. We want to adorn our lives, adorn our church, adorn our communities with good works, as Titus chapter 2 says. Your word says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 that you have prepared good works for us, prepared beforehand, before that we were even um, born, before the world was even made, the mystery. You have prepared good works for us. And Lord, um, those we believe with all our heart in order for us to walk in the good works that you've prepared for us. We need your word. We need iron in our soul. We need, we're fragile, we're weak without your word. And I just pray we're built up in it this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So Judges chapter 2, the Israelites have been, uh, they have been delivered from the land of Egypt. Slavery, 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua, the book immediately preceding this, uh, led them through the Jordan River, in which the Jordan River did the same thing that the Red Sea did. It, uh, God parted it, and there was a wall of water on the right and left, and they walked through on dry ground. They went through, and in a period of seven years, they took over the whole area that we know today as Israel, and, uh, and then um, at the end of at the end of the book uh, Joshua, which is really a, a, a book which is just filled with hope and optimism, and it's just a, such a great testi- testimony because uh, the people were obedient, and you see there in the book of um, uh, Joshua the fruit of obedience. It's just a wonderful thing. We're not going to see that uh, in the book of Judges. We're going to see the fruit of disobedience. Um, and so very briefly... Uh, in verse 7 of chapter 2, we read this last week. It says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Um, and then it says in verse 10, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, that is the generation of Joshua, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And that word, no, K-N-O-W, the Hebrew word, yada, it's, it's the, they didn't know the word in, in the sense that they didn't have a relationship with him. 
Um, Genesis 4, verse uh, 1. Adam says, Adam knew Eve and Cain was born. It, it, same word here, the, the word know. They didn't know the Lord nor the work which he had done. They knew about it. They didn't know it. It hadn't, it hadn't sunk in. They hadn't, their lives were unaffected by it. They were just uh, so much, so many stories. That's what happened. Um, and, and then it says, so they didn't know the Lord nor the work which we, uh, they had done. Verse 11, and the Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. And then in verse 14 says, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hand of plunderers. You know what a plunderer is? Someone who comes and just takes everything from your life, the deposits which had been deposited from the Lord, and just steals it um, um, away. Verse 15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. That so describes the life of a backslidden Christian. And I don't, I, I don't know if you were ever in a place like this. I certainly was. Just for the first uh, about year and a half, I was a Christian. Um, ever I, ever I was backslidden, and everywhere I went, the Lord was against me. And that's just such a good thing for God to do. Why would he want to support us in a life, a backslidden life, uh, in which we're not really living out the, just the wonderful life that he has prepared for us in which we're going to glorify his name. So I love that in verse 15. Everywhere they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And it says at the end of verse 15, they were greatly distressed. Verse 16, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now we're going to read of the first judge tonight. We still haven't come to the first judge, although some people think Joshua was the first judge, and he may have been. What is a judge? You look at it, you look at the, you see the book of Judges, and you think of a man or woman with a black robe on, sitting behind in a court, a bench, with a gavel next to them. Well, you can get that out of your mind. That's not what the word judge means here. The word judge, as it's used in the book of Judges, it's the, um, it's, it's, it's the Hebrew word shofet, and it means a ruler, and it doesn't mean one who judges a case, although that was part of their role. But, you know, s- same with kings, by the way. People would go to David and other kings and bring their issues for him to judge, but it was a ruler, meaning they, they led, they governed uh, Israel. The office of judge was held for life, but your son or daughter didn't get the office. It was not hereditary, very different obviously than the king's. As soon as the king start, well, when David um, uh, is, is installed as king, then his uh, his descendants uh, take the throne, but not the judges. You will not see, I don't think you do, a son uh, inherit uh, the office of judge. And the last thing, there was no income attached to their office. And so if you remember, as some of you know in the book, in First Kings, 
uh, rather in, um, yeah, in 1 Kings, Solomon and other kings, they extract a lot of taxes from the people. And the, it was to feed his own household. That did not happen with a judge. So th- what happened, it says, um, the Lord would raise up judges, verse 17, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. So why do we say in the book of Joshua it was a, a time where people obeyed the Lord? Because that's what the Bible says. It says there in that their fathers, in verse 17, obeyed the Lord. And we got to see what happened when you obeyed the Lord, just the prosperity that came. Verse 18, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies. All the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So the author here, and it is believed the author is Samuel, who anointed Saul and David king, um, he writes here basically an introduction to the book of what's going to happen, this cycle of behavior. Verse 19, and it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So as soon as the judge died, the ruler died, the people went right back to their former behavior verse 20 then the anger of the lord was against israel uh, was hot against israel and he said because this nation has transgressed transgressed my covenant which i commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice i also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which joshua left when he died so that though through them i may test israel whether they will keep the ways of the lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And so, uh, you know, we have, there's several verses in the book of Exodus and in the book of uh, Deuteronomy in which a promise is made, the Lord promises to basically uh, go before them and with their cooperation, their cooperation of faith to drive out all the enemies. I think of Exodus 23. Uh, it says this. God says through Moses, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hittite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Verse 31, I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river, meaning the Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, 
and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So Moses had made that clear to the nation of Israel many times before they went in. We, so, but we saw in the, in the end, and in, in actually in Judges at the end of chapter 1, how many of the tribes, once they, uh, they occupied the land that had been given to them, that they refused to drive out the uh, remaining inhabitants of the land. Uh, and so that's what chapter 1 is about. Verse 21 says Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites. Verse 32, Zebulun didn't drive out the, uh, the Canaanites. Verse 31, Asher didn't drive out the Canaanites. Naphtali, same thing. Uh, and, and Dan, the same thing. And, 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 and we went, we, we spent quite a bit of time um, just on why they didn't drive them out. And the focus of what we talked about was really the comfort level that they had once they were in the land, once Joshua conquered all the enemies, because what had happened initially was, was the Canaanites and, and the Hittites and the Perizzites came out to meet them. And over a period of seven years, the occupants of the land came out to meet, meet them, and every single time they did, they, did, they defeated them. But after seven years, it says there was a time of rest. However... Even in their time of rest, each of the tribes had this land where they're somewhere in the land, the people were still living, practicing their pagan rituals, ritual prostitution, ritual sacrifice, but they, they were left to themselves, and they didn't go after them and drive them out. And so we talked, in, in some cases, they just said, you can stay here, but you're going to have to pay us taxes. And, and so we talked a lot about how that was just disobedience to the Lord. They just were comfortable with what they had already possessed. Uh, in Deuteronomy, we learned that when they came into the, possess the land, they possessed vineyards they didn't plant. They, um, they took over wells they didn't dig. They took over houses that they didn't build. And they liked that. And the thought of getting out of that house and continuing the battle, they didn't want to do. They disobeyed. They disobeyed. But here in chapter 3, verse 1, and, and, and you see it there at the end of chapter 2, the Lord had a purpose as well in allowing certain enemies to stay. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had known any of the wars in Canaan. This was so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who dwell in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, uh, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath, Verse 4, and they were left that God might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And so 
Here, if you're reading this carefully, I'm hoping you're a little confused. I'm really hoping you're a little confused. Because on the one hand, it's clear from the book of Joshua and the first two chapters of Judges that they disobeyed the Lord by not continuing the conquest. They disobeyed Him. It was disobedience. At the same, by the same token, at the beginning of chapter 3, it, it says there, God left the nations that He may test Israel by them, that is, to see if they would obey Him. So here you have a, a theme that's from Genesis to Revelation. On the one hand, you have man's free will. You have man's free will. We have a choice of whether or not to obey God. But then on the other hand, you see the sovereignty of God who it says what I see in the first two verses of chapter 3 is he allowed it to happen. He deliberately allowed those nations to stay. Those nations which still practice those pagan rituals for the purpose of testing their heart because he wanted to know what was really in their heart. And here's the deal. You can't reconcile those two truths. At least that's what we teach at Calvary Chapel. There are many churches out there that try to reconcile them. But we, we believe at Calvary Chapel that you cannot reconcile the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. It's just impossible somehow they're both true. Somehow the Lord uh, told them that they should go into the land and that they should um, remove all the enemies because if they, the enemy stayed, it was going to draw them into sin. He gave them the power to do it, and they disobeyed. It was their own act of free will. But yet at the same time, God deliberately allowed the enemies to stay. And so, for 2,000 years, people have tried to say, that, oh, I have the solution to this. They don't. It can only be reconciled in the mind of God. It can only be reconciled in the mind of God. And, and you know, um, the, Lord, the Lord does the same thing. You know, He does the same thing uh, he does the same thing with us, you know, we'll, uh, we get saved and um, as strange as it may, as it may, as it may, as it may seem, he'll actually allow us to continue to fall, fall into sin because he knows that if we don't, our pride is going to take over. I remember the first time in my life that I knew um, very well uh, a Christian who had come out of the homosexual lifestyle. And we got to know him very, very well. Our church in Miami was probably about 20 to 30% of people either in, coming out of, or coming out of the, the, the homosexual lifestyle. And I got to know him real well. And he, he, this guy actually had been... Um, um, it, it was such a confirmation that we were supposed to wind up in the church that we were in, Calvary Chapel of Miami Beach, because I remember a time when I was in Atlanta, 
Um, the first five years of Stephanie, uh, my Christian life, living with Stephanie was in Atlanta. And Stephanie one day told me she was, she was watching the Donahue show. Anyone remember that? The Donahue show, Phil Donahue? And they had um, practicing homosexuals and f- um, former homosexuals there. And, and one of the guys was like, yeah, I'm out of the lifestyle. And um, I believe God. I believe God has a better plan for me. And... Uh, um, and, th- and then the practicing homosexual kept on saying to the guy, you'll be back. Believe me, you will be back. I mean, it's really, it really quite wicked what this guy was doing. And so a few years go by, and uh, this guy, uh, Tony, we were having lunch in Miami, and he's just telling me his testimony. He says, and then one time I, I actually got invited to the Donahue show. Oh, Really? What happened? Oh, yeah, I was on it. I was just giving my testimony about um, coming out of the homosexual lifestyle. And uh, there was another guy on there, and he kept on saying, you'll be back. You'll be back. I'm like, I can't believe this, Lord. This is unbelievable. It's just one of those wonderful confirmations. You're supposed to be exactly uh, where God has you. Um, But about a year after that, he, he fell back into the homosexual lifestyle. And I was a younger Christian at the time, and it was such a shock to me. It was so unbelievable. Uh, this guy was the type of guy where he, he was a very good speaker. He could get up in front of people, and really, really, his testimony was so unbelievably powerful. And at the time, I just didn't realize it. But I remember t- telling, you know, talking to about it with Pastor Robert and said, yeah, I knew it, was, I knew it had to happen. And what he was referring to is there was still a root of pride. In him, in order for him to be usable. Now, he, he's walking with the Lord today. In fact, he was just at a Calvary Chapel conference a, um, a couple years ago uh, but, and, and spoke there. But uh, he's doing good today, but he had to fall. Now, again, same as uh, the, the book of Judges here. God gave him all the tools necessary to stay out of it forever. And it was his own, with his... Second Peter chapter 1 says God has given all, everything that we need for life and godliness. And he didn't have to choose to go back into homosexuality. But somehow God, God let it happen. And, and so this is a single, the same thing. It says that God allowed the enemies to stay, to see what was in their own heart. You see, Tony still had a root of pride. He'd be the first to say. He still, he still had a root of pride in his heart. And, and it, needed to be, it needed to be dealt with. I, I love the verse here in verse 2. It says that, um, uh, it says, he left enemies in the land so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. Now, what in the world is that about? Well, what, what that is, what that's really talking about there supremely is he wanted the next generation to know what it was like to just depend upon the Lord, to, to, to really be in the trenches. And man, if God doesn't come through, I'm cooked. And, and this is a danger with second-generation children, particularly children whose parents have protected them so much that they have had no opportunity to learn battle. And, and um, one of, Stephanie and my, uh, uh, our, our verse 
that we use, um, kind of our banner verse for parenting is Psalm 144, um, verse 1. It says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Parents, your responsibility, supremely, is not to protect your kids from sin. It's to train them from ba- for battle. That's your responsibility, supremely. And go ahead, you know, <laughs> tr- protect them your, their whole life from any, any, every conceivable thing, and, and you'll, see, you'll see. You'll be remembering one day well, me talking in uh, uh, warning you you got to train them for battle. And, and I don't know exactly how that, um, how that happens for every family, but somehow you got to let the world in a little to inoculate them over time, whether it's in a little league or whatever. Um, public school, our kids were in public school, but it doesn't have to be you. In some way, you got to train them for battle. So I love that, um, I love that concept that he, he, he left... Nations there because he wanted to make sure that children who had never known war, that they would know war and learn to be dependent upon him. Verse 5 says this, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods." And so God tested them by allowing the nations to stay in the land. And what happened? They fell flat on their face. Again, that Exodus 23 that I um, read to you earlier when Moses was telling them to go out. And he, 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 three times he says, you've got to drive out all of your enemies. All of them. He says in, in, three times there in uh, Exodus 23. Um, and, and he says, he said specifically, do not, do not take their daughters to be your wives. He, he, he specifically um, tells them that there. Um, you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. And uh, it says, they shall not dwell in your hand lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And, and so, actually, it doesn't mention marriage in these verses, but what it does is say you need to drive them out completely so that they're not living around you. Uh, and, and, um, but they did, and the wives uh, enticed them uh, to serve uh, their gods. And it says in verse 7, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. You know, I, I, I like that verse 7. It says, so the children of Israel, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, my prayer for every one of you in this room that you would understand when you're in that room by yourself doing that sin, you're doing it in the sight of the Lord. You are. That's what's going on. You're doing it in the sight of the Lord. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We try to somehow suppress that truth that that is, um, that that is, is going to happen. Um, you know, it, 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 when they take their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their, their daughters to their sons, um, that's a serious thing 
for more reasons than for more reasons than just they'll be drawn into sin. It's a serious thing because many, many moons ago when we started this study again, Genesis to Malachi, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was given a promise. He said, through your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. And so when you start intermarrying with other, with, with other nations, nations who have no interest at all in your God, what's going to happen is that line, the line of Messiah, is going to be wiped out. In theory, of course, we know that the Lord's not going to allow that. But, but, but it's a serious sin that God has to judge because there's a plan to save the world. With Noah, he initiated a plan of judgment in which all the world, except for Noah and his family, perished. With Abraham, he initiated um, a plan of redemption, and that involved the Messiah who was going to descend from Abraham. So when these people start marrying, um, um, intermarrying, their chil- they're letting their children intermarry, that's a serious thing. Verse 8 says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshathium. Mentioned four times in the next few verses. Cushan Reshathium, king of Mesopotamia. Now, Cushan Reshathium means this dark double wickedness. That's what his name means. Cushan Rishatham. Does someone have a better way of saying it? I, maybe if you do, uh, shout it out. But it means dark, double wickedness. And that is who they're enslaved to. And it says for eight years. And then it says after eight years, verse 9, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And you've got to wonder, why on earth does it take eight years to cry out to the Lord when they're in bondage to dark double wickedness. And you, do you know what dark double wickedness does when you're enslaved to it? It just wants you com- complete bondage. It just wants to it just wants to bring you into slavery. It wants to put as much misery in, in your life as it possibly can. That's what it wants to do. And so uh, uh, it took them eight years, and it never does cease to amaze me when, when I'm talking to a backslidden Christian, and they've been in a backslidden state for five years, and they still won't leave the backslidden state. Well, there's precedent for it in the Bible, and it's in the book of Judges. Here it's eight years. Unfortunately, we'll see them wait even longer. I tell you, sin is deceptive. And it, when it gets rooted into our, into our hearts, it just blinds, and, um, and we don't cry out to the Lord. But verse 9 says, when the children of, uh, 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 of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. So this is the first judge for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, we've seen this guy before. When Caleb wanted a certain piece of territory that he had been 
Remember who Caleb was. He was one of the two spies that went up into the, um, the land of Israel before they ever got in, and he was faithful. He came back and encouraged the people to go into the land of Israel, but they ignored him, and they went into fear, and for 40 years they wandered around. But Caleb went in, and uh, he said, hey, whoever gets this territory here, they can marry my daughter. Wow. And uh, so... Um, this guy, Othniel, if you remember, he was the guy. He went in, and I think he slew three giants, and um, he got Caleb's daughter. And, uh, and so he is the first, and it says in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord de- delivered Cushan Reshethim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshethim. Dark double wickedness. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, before we move on uh, to the next uh, cycle, because there's just going to be this cycle, uh, a judge is going to be raised up. He's going to rescue them. They're going to be okay for a while. They're going to go back into sins. They're going to follow foreign gods. They're going to, uh, uh, God is going to send people to oppress them. They're going to be miserable. miserable. Another judge is going to be raised up and uh, deliver Israel. We just saw, you just saw that first cycle. We're going to see like 12 of those um, in the book of Judges. But I don't, each judge has something distinct and unique to learn from that judge. And in verse 10, I just want to call your attention to the beginning of the verse. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And I don't know that it's possible to overemphasize the need for this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the city of Boston. Why? Because we have wicked double darkness all around us. Boston left historical Christianity 150 years before the rest of the country. In 1801, I'm sorry if you guys, for you who've been with us for a while, you've heard me say this 100 times, but Harvard University, which started off as a as a college to train pastors in 1801, they came out officially declaring that there was no such thing as the Trinity and Jesus was not God. That's Harvard. That's like the pillar of, of, of the city. Dark double darkness we're surrounded by and it's, it's, it's a shame when you're around pastors or Christians or wherever, and they, they, they act as if God's not bigger than that. Like, oh, we're just going to be this groveling people and this type of thing. And I've been there too, speak to my own heart. But right here, it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and his hand prevailed over dark double wickedness. Kushan Rashithium. Notice how it says, it uses the preposition upon. The Spirit 
of the Lord came upon him. Now, I just want to back up and pause because this is such an important subject. The whole subject of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so unbelievably important to us, to you. Because we're surrounded by dark, double dark wickedness. And it takes on a completely new, um, it, there's like a complete new chapter and, and actually, better put, the new covenant is called a better covenant in the book of Hebrews for a number of reasons, but probably perhaps most of which is we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us as a New Testament believer because of the blood of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, rarely do you see any reference to the Holy Spirit inside of anybody. I think one time it says it about David. It says it of John the Baptist. He was an Old Testament prophet, even though he's in the New Testament. He was an Old Testament prophet. It does say, I believe, that he, the Holy Spirit was in him, but rarely does it say it. Here it uses the preposition upon. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and not too often in the Old Testament do you even see that. The, whole, the Spirit of the, uh, rather, the Spirit of God coming upon someone. Uh, rarely do you um, ever really uh, see it. Uh, you, you, did, uh, you do see it uh, with Moses that the um, Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You see it in the book of Numbers of all people with Balaam, who was a wicked prophet, that the Lord put the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he, and he prophesied. You will see it throughout the book of Judges with the judges. The Spirit of God comes upon Othniel, it comes upon Gideon, it comes upon Jephthah, it comes, it says, mightily upon Samson, the Spirit of God. Um, it comes upon Saul, uh, but, but it, it, not too many people. Now, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says this. The Spirit of the, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the um, uh, in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And who is that speaking of? That's Jesus. In the beginning of the book of Luke, when he first goes public with his ministry, it says he opened that verse and he read it to the people. And it says all the people's eyes were glued on him. And it says this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. That's what Jesus said to them. Ultimately, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in Christ. We do have these instances of the Holy Spirit coming upon certain people in the Old Testament. Really, really quickly, in the New Testament, um, you have uh, three prepositions used for the Holy Spirit. The first preposition is the Greek word en, which means in, and every single believer when they asked Jesus into their life, Ephesians chapter 1, received the Holy Spirit 
as a deposit and he comes in them. In addition to that, you see in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is with certain people. In John 14, 17, Jesus said to the disciples, the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So he is with you before you're even a Christian. And that is why so many times before you're a Christian, you see the hand of God in your life. It's because before you were a Christian, just like it says in John 14, the Spirit of God started dealing with you. But then, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, he says, wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that is referred to a promise. It's referred to a promise in Acts chapter 1. And, and the reason I'm making a, such a big deal of this is that few times is it, it is the Holy Spirit coming upon person ever used in the Old Testament. It's used with a few of the judges. And when that happens, great things happen. Very rarely, if ever, is it inside of a person. But in the New Testament, you get both. You have a promise of both. You have a promise if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit in you. But then you also have the promise if you are interested, if you seek after it and ask the Lord, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Not necess- doesn't necessarily happen at the time of your salvation. In Acts chapter 8, when, when Philip went to Samaria, there was a revival there. People were baptized in water. I think it was Peter and John showed up at a later time and says, well, have they received the Holy Spirit yet? No, they haven't. He puts their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. What is the purpose for having the Holy Spirit upon us it's really similar to what you see with this first judge, Othniel. It's to, it's to do God's ministry. In other words, the Holy Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit inside of us enables us to function in obedience in our own lives. But I personally believe, in, when Jesus says in, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and when he does... Um, you will be a witness in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit coming upon you is to be a witness, to a, a, a witness to do ministry, to be sent forth into the world in an overcoming way, like this first judge Othniel, just like him, because the Holy Spirit upon him was much more than just about. Othniel, it was a, that God had a purpose for him to go out. And, and, and so really important that you get real with the Lord. And if you've never been baptized by the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you really have a work of God in your life that you want to go out and do, whether it's just with your family or neighbors or, or, or foreign missions or whatever, ask that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Ask God to do that work. So, 
next judge. It says in um, verse 12, and again, uh, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. In other words, this is how hard sin was for them to give up their sin. 18 years. They didn't want to give up their sin. But then finally in verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. It's not fair that some guys and women are left-handed. They become the best baseball players, basketball players, soccer players, Lionel Messi By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. In other words, so every year, because they were under this uh, pagan king, they had to bring a ton of pile of cash. It wasn't paper, but um, uh, they had to bring taxes every year to him, and so that's what they're doing, and they brought the tribute to Eglon, verse 17, now Eglon was a very fat man, and when he had finished, uh, finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people who had carried the, tri- he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So this guy Ehud, who was uh, the second judge, came back to this wicked, very fat man named Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, the king said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So it's kind of unusual here, but he lets all his people who are guarding him go out of the room. I guess by this time he had just gotten a huge, speaking of fat, fat bundle of money um, from the Israelites, and he trusts them. And he, all the people leave the room, and it, and it says he rose from his, uh, his seat, verse 21, then Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Uh, Then one of the most uh, descriptive verses in the Bible, verse 22, even the hilt, meaning the handle, went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of the belly, and his entrails came out That word entrails is an example of modern translators being uncomfortable with the actual word, which means poop. You can do the word search yourself. uh, The King James says dirt. It's the same word, uh, set of words for offal. Some of you know the King James word for um, offal. His poop came out. How about that, Jordan? His poop came out. Uh, Verse 23, Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him, locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. 
meaning he was, they thought he was going to the bathroom. Verse 25, so they waited till they uh, were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the door to the room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, they, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehub had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sira. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. The children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them, and he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Why did he say that? It's because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Because he had no basis for saying that. He had no basis to say such a thing. They had been in their tribute for 18 years. They were impoverished. But this is what happens when the Spirit of the the Lord falls upon a man or a woman. They're filled with courage. And he said, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the forge of the Jordan, leading to the uh, Moab, and did uh, allow, didn't, did not allow anyone to cross. At that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 Years. That's the longest period of time of rest in the book of Judges. 80 years. Because it's going to get worse and worse and worse. As cycles of rebellion always do. I, I, I have noticed this over the years. When, you, when God forbid that it happened to anyone in this room. But when I, when I see a person backslide for a few years, repent. Backslide for a few more years, repent. The, it always gets worse. You know, you, where Jesus says, you, you cast the devil out of someone, it's empty, it's seven, come back. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's going to get worse and worse in the book of Judges. I want to close out with just an just a, a important, uh, a, a important point here. You know, I, I don't want to go too much into... And, you know, and, and make things where they're not supposed to be made. But I think it, it make illustrations um, out of what happened that's, that's not really there. But a lot of folks, when they, they see this man, Ehud, he's described as a very fat man. And the, the sword, in verse 16, he had a dagger, double-edged and a cubit length, that's a foot and a half. And when it says that he... Uh, verse 21, he thrust it into the belly and the, the, the handle went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. Um, they see a picture here. And I think it's fair. And whether or not the Holy Spirit meant this, I think certainly the Bible teaches the principle. Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 11, Hebrews chapter, uh, it's not verse 11, it's verse 12. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints of marrow. And if there's any, if there's any picture of the flesh, f- physical flesh in the Bible, is this not it? This very fat man where you, 
a knife goes in and even the handle is, is in his blubber. That guy's a fleshy guy. And I don't know what to say uh, other than I do feel sometimes I, I feel like a, I sound like a broken record, but you guys, you so need the word of God <laughs> to kill your flesh. I, I so need it. I've been walking with God strongly for 30 years. I so desperately need it every day. And, 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 and sometimes the word of God, literally, like a dagger, you will read a verse, and like a dagger, it will kill your flesh. Here recently, I had planned, um, I had planned uh, something that was really special to me with a couple other guys that I know um, that I haven't got together with in, I haven't got together just them alone in 20 years. And I'm probably never going to get to be alone with them ever again ever again in this setting and I and I um and so uh we planned this thing and uh and I'm I was really excited about it and then just out of the blue I get an email that one of the guys invited someone else to this one or two day gathering that we were going to be in for a few days and 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 I, I actually don't know the person real well and I'm like what in the world I was so upset because I had so looked forward just to getting together with these two men that I know so well and I love so much. It's like, what, is this guy crazy? Is he crazy inviting this other person who, relatively speaking, barely knows us? And for two days, I was so upset. And, but I, 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 God is always so faithful. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, in my little Puritan devotional, actually, it, it talked about this verse. It says in Hebrews 13, 14, for, he, for here, meaning in this world, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And it just like, the, like Ehud's spear, it just went right into this flesh, my flesh, right the handle into the big fat blobber of my flesh and killed it. Because right there, I'm like, you know, that's why I'm so disappointed and upset and angry. And it's because I'm wanting, some, I'm wanting a continuing city in this world, meaning I'm wanting, just, I'm wanting just to go from great thing that I planned, a great thing that I planned, a great thing I, I, I want the world to be my joy. But that the word of God is so clear. It says in Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no continuing city. And it just killed the thing. It killed the flesh. And I'm fine with it now. And I never shared, by the way, I never shared that I was upset with the other two guys. Never shared it. Why? And, and so the word of God does this. And, and we need the word of God as much as ever before. So I, was, I just, you know, we, we're going um, to stop there. There's one more verse. Um, there's one verse uh, left uh, in that chapter, but it's, it's dedicated to a, a judge, Shamgar, and that's the only verse about this judge. So we'll pick up there uh, next week.